This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hi, I'm Liki. Hi, I'm Jen. Hi, I'm Joe. Hi, I'm Rob. Hi, I'm Elisa. So today we're talking about the difference between climate and weather. And I'm, I'm going to start and I'm going to ask Leaky, what do you think? Okay, the difference between climate and weather, from my understanding, is that when we go somewhere, we talk about the climate there is that is our expectations of how you know, temperature, the rain uh, will be at a certain period of time of the year for a region. Whereas the weather is actual temperature and rain or sunlight that is happening at the certain place. So for me, weather is the actual thing and the climate is more about expectations. Rob, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, I was just going to say, we'll often say, what's the weather going to be like today? And, and of course, it's quite a hard one to answer these days, isn't it? I used to think about summer holidays as being sunny with a bit of rain, whereas now it seems to be lots of rain. And when I go on holiday in Cornwall, it's often t-shirt weather and sunny in February, which seems to be completely the other way around to me, to what it was when I was a child. Has anybody else experienced that? Oh, absolutely. I I grew up in uh, Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was like clockwork in November to March, we would have rain. And it was the only time of the year when we had any rain. You know, it's like Mediterranean climate. So, you know, I'd be walking to school and there would be a storm and I'd have to have my umbrella ready. And so you could really depend on that. But I guess the last 20 years or so, it's been changing so radically. They don't get almost any rain anymore in California. And the last time I was there in 2019, wildfire season was really out of control. And there were 140,000 people under evacuation orders in my county due to wildfires. So it's now fire season all year round and there's no rain. So it's a really big shift. We should probably find out where everybody is. Well, where where are you, Joe? I'm in uh, sunny south of France where it has been raining for a long, long time now. <laughs> um, but I'm uh, actually a digital nomad. So um, every every place I go is new. I'm never really accustomed to the weather in any specific place. I'm always the new guy. But I listen to the neighbors wherever I go. So my neighbor now is uh, complaining of drought. Even though it's raining, it's very strange. It's raining consistently, but not enough to soak in. And Rob, where are you? I'm in Birmingham. I was interested in Joe's comment there, actually, because it reminded me of, I suppose, about six years old. I used to go to Wales on holidays. We'd stay in a caravan. And uh, while we had rain on the holidays, and I'd be disappointed because I wanted to go out and play on the beach. There was this waterfall that we would go and visit when we arrived in Carnarf. 
and we would walk down to the waterfall and it was this cascade of water and salmon would jump up and it was very exciting to see this but I decided to treat my children and take them there this one summer and that was about uh, 15 years ago and we traveled down and uh, took about four hours to get there and when we arrived I was standing by the riverbank and my children were looking up at me saying is this what you want <laughs> to see and there was this tiny <laughs> tiny trickle of water wow. <laughs> my wife was looking at me thinking what is he up to <laughs> and it's exactly what Joe is saying there's more rain but th there was such I couldn't believe how little water was going over this waterfall although you can't use that in itself as evidence of climate change it's certainly it's that amongst many other things that start to make you feel a bit worried about what's going on yeah that's a really good point <laughs> i'm very sentimental when it comes to weather and um actually i think i'm more sentimental when it uh comes to season i'm very very attached to seasons because i live in france and um, I wasn't born in France. At one stage of my life, I lived in Singapore. And I don't know if you know where Singapore is located. It's one degree uh, north of the equatorial line. So oh, wow. the, the temperature uh, varies between 29 to 31 all year round. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent a couple of years there. I was working there. <laughs> but I realized I was depressed because there was no season. And every day was the same. Every single day was the same. It was either 29, 30, or 31. So, no, well, actually, there's a raining season. But, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I really like when it's cold outside. And um, I really like springtime when you see everything's burgeoning, like now, because we're recording in April. And in France, um, everything is really green and very beautiful. And I really, really love seasons. And I really love four seasons. Uh, how I really realized that uh, there's a change in the weather pattern is, I think my memory is related to snow because um, I was born in Hong Kong in Asia and uh, there was no snow there. And I came to France uh, when I was a child in the 80s and it was still snowing in Paris every winter. There was snow every single winter. But I think for the last 20 years, there was no snow anymore. No, I mean, yeah, there are little, there's sometimes some snow, but it's kind of snow that will melt in a couple of hours. So not like, you know, this thick layer of, um, yep. of white snow. Yeah, covered, covering the street and everything. I really miss that. And I, I mean, it's not a change of weather. To me, it's a change of climate because, uh, you know, 30 years ago, well, actually 40 years ago now, there was snow every winter in Paris. And that stayed. When I was little, I was living in Winnipeg, which is on the prairies in Canada. And I remember one day we woke up and it was strangely dark and couldn't figure out why. I was only five or six. And I remember my mother going to open the front door and she opened it and it was a wall of white. The snow was all the way up past the top of the door. And the, the, we couldn't see out the windows because they were, we were completely snowed in. We had to go up to the second story of the house to be able to see out. And um, my uncle had to come <laughs> with somebody's snowmobile, I think, <laughs> and start digging 
us out so that we could at least open the door in case there was something that had, you know, in case you had to get out. But I remember thinking that was a grand adventure. And uh, I don't think it's been quite like that since, although they've had some really wild weather uh, out there uh, of late. But for many, many years, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. But I remember regular snow banks on the side of the road taller than I was. They were always fun to play in. <laughs> so, so what did you do? Your, your uncle opened the door, so did you have to dig a tunnel? Through he the- had to dig. He had to dig to get to the door. Uh, so it took a long time. <laughs> and we didn't have cell phones or anything, you know, <laughs> long time ago. But yeah. I live, in, I live in Germany, and actually the first year we moved here in 2010, uh, there was a big snowstorm that dumped probably a meter of snow And I thought, oh, cool, because I was coming from California, where I'd lived for 10 years. Before that, we'd lived in upstate New York, and so we had snow before when my kids were small. I really thought, oh, good, okay, we're going to have four seasons. Well, ever since then, it's changed so much. Northern Germany doesn't get snow every year anymore. I mean, if we get any, it's a few inches, and then it basically melts within a day. So it was always exciting to look out and see that it's snowing, but you know it's not going to stick. One of the things that I've noticed is that uh, the wineries in England used to be, I think, laughed at by people in Northern Europe, France and Germany. Whereas now, the there are French people actually saying, this English champagne tastes just like the champagne that I used to try in champagne 50 years ago. So there are comments like this we're hearing. but <laughs> So it's clearly getting warmer uh, and in some parts of the UK, there's very similar soil to areas in Champagne. So another sign, I suppose, that there could be this warming going. We have a burgeoning wine industry here on the west coast of Canada. And uh, even in the town that I'm in, there are 17 or 18 wineries and a meadery and a cidery and all these other things now. And again, it used to be, oh, you know, oh, BC wine is ha ha. And now it's winning awards because it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter here. Wow. I mean, I, I was totally unaware that there's wine in England and in BC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not, that, it's not that bad, actually. <laughs> Certainly been trying it, it's pretty nice, but it's, uh, it's, it's worrying. <laughs> well, but I mean, you know, if you yeah. want to have wine in the world, obviously it's got to move north. I mean, I've come from California where there's a lot of wine, wine industry, and they're really struggling because there's no water. And they're having fires, and maybe it's a good thing on some level that there's still some place that can grow grapes. <laughs> Whereas here in the south of France, uh, we had late frost last year that wiped out cultures all around. Uh, last year, there was no wine in the area, but no grape. I think that this year, the wine growers, are they, are they called wine growers? What do you call those people? <laughs> <laughs> it depends. <laughs> wine producers? Wine producers, they are better prepared this year. Now, I think that the damage is not as bad as last year in France. And you tell me, Joe, if I'm wrong, but uh, because now that we know that they are late frost in France, now, so they are, uh, the wine growers are better prepared. So now this year, they managed to reduce the damage, right? Uh, yeah, they probably made um, fires in the vineyards, and and I don't know other ways of doing it than the traditional way. The very impressive 
fires in the vineyards to keep the vines from freezing. But it takes time, it takes effort, and it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah. But what I witness is that, you know, the effects of climate change has become, um, you know, it's, it's affecting the, you know, something that is traditional. So now we have to find new ways to deal with it. We had a tremendous uh, climate change year last year. I'd never heard the term atmospheric river before. Uh, we had an atmospheric river. We had a, a heat dome and we had a crazy wildfire season. So our atmospheric river was like lots and lots and lots of rain that actually um, caused immense flooding in the, the Fraser Valley, which is just like down the road. And the Fraser Valley is where there are lots and lots of farms. There were thousands of farm animals drowned. Uh, people were out in their boats trying to pull animals into their boats. It was it was an unbelievably heartbreaking time. People lost their homes. There was a pump that was at risk of uh, breaking down. So all the community came out and sandbagged. And it was a river from the U.S. that was threatening to over overflow its banks, which would have been more massive devastation. Anyway, there was a lot of tense moments. There was one night where I couldn't, we were all on Twitter and up late waiting to hear if that pump station was going to hold, because if it didn't, the whole area was going to be gone. Because it used to be, a hundred years ago, a lake, and they drained the lake and turned it into farmland. <laughs> So it it was very tense. We had an uh, we had a heat dome that killed 500 people in Vancouver area, and yeah, it was just it was just this wild wild year where all these things happened that we had never had before. We'd never heard of heat domes. We'd never heard of atmospheric rivers, and then the fires were also we lost an entire town. An entire town burned down. The town of Lytton, BC, is gone. Uh, because the fire came through and the town was gone. So we're all a little scared about what's going to happen yeah, this summer. That, that was my question. Do you think it would happen again? It could happen again. It happened in Germany, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, last year there was a he, incredible, unbelievable, and down in the, also the wine region of along the Rhine, I guess, or in one of those tributaries. Uh, yeah, it was uh, unbelievable. I don't remember what the numbers were, but there wasn't time for people to escape. It, it happened so fast. You know, they knew there was rain coming, but they didn't expect this because it was like more rain that had fallen in a hundred years. It was a huge amount of rain all at once. And if you've seen the videos, the power of that forced force of water really was unbelievable to watch. It was terrifying. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody's really prepared for these kinds of scale of events. Uh, I'm thinking though right now also about the fact that I just read a headline that in parts of India, it's 47 degrees Celsius. Yes. Um, uh, and I know I've been to India before in Southern India, especially from starting around March, it starts to climb really fast. You know, it starts to get hot. So you need to take three showers a day because you're just sweating all day long. My, my daughter used to live in India. Uh, you know, I can't even fathom 47 degrees like now in April, right? That's just hard to imagine. How do you live in 47 degree weather, right? I've read something about that yesterday. Apparently, we cannot live in these regions anymore if it goes up to 50 degrees every year because our human bodies cannot cope with such a high temperature because when we get to this high temperature, our body is start to dysfunction. So are we 
our body is not able to create sweat, which is supposed to, which is designed to to cool down our body. So we, it will kill our coping mechanism. It's so hot. It's it will would not be able to function. So humans will not be able to live in these regions anymore. Yeah, I mean the roads actually melt. It's incredible to see that uh, in India and in parts oh. of India, the roads literally the roads melt. Yeah, we're, none of us are prepared for this. Yeah, but I think that Joe mentioned that uh, because of climate change, we're not building the we're not building houses and roads the same way we used to do. Um. Yes, uh, well, we, sh we should really start <laughs> building differently. Uh, of course, there is uh, flood zones that are starting to really see the benefit of building differently, uh, for example. But also on a on a day-to-day -day basis as an architect, for me, it's hard to gouge the, the patterns of weather in an area where I'm going to build. When you're going to build in a place, there's two ways of going about it, you check the examples of local architecture and or you check the weather patterns and all the microclimate and all the other characteristics of that place and build up a strategy around that, right? Well, our graphs and our data is all mixed up now and we don't really know what to think about it. And the examples of vernacular architecture, they were adapted to a weather that is not what we're having now. So, for example, consider the heat waves in the south of France. The houses now in France, they're not prepared for the amount of heat that is coming now, for the length of the, and the intensity of these heat waves. They were good 50, 50 years ago, but now they're starting to like reach their max, sort of. The extremity of, of weather in, on, the, on the south coast of England has been uh, interesting to watch over the last few years. There's a rail line that uh, is one of the main routes into Cornwall that runs through Devon. And one of the pieces of line has run very close to the sea for, for decades. And uh, a storm took this rail line out completely. And so this arterial rail route into one of, the, one of the largest, well, two of the largest counties in England was completely disabled and uh, took months to put right. And from personal experience, the, one of the storms that hit um, St. Moore's, where we go often, the things that were coming out of the sea and onto the road were taking the road up. And one of the landlords at one of the pubs in, in St. Moore's was saying that he could see the tarmac on the road being rolled up like carpet during this storm. And he'd never experienced anything like it in his life before. We had a major highway called the Coquihalla Highway, which is a, sort of a commuter highway that uh, makes it faster to get from the lower mainland part of British Columbia to the interior to other parts. And uh, parts of it were completely gone. The, the footage is quite dramatic. They worked very, very hard to get that up and running because people couldn't move. There was supply chain stoppages like food it was quite something but entire sections uh in the mountain areas uh were gone from the water well, there was a village in the southwest of england that was cut off in that way through flooding and so this village could only be approached by boat and these villagers because the infrastructure wasn't there were having to have teams come in from the uh, fire service on uh, on ribs to bring them supplies in to to the village so I wonder if there's ways we can 
you know, what what can people do individually to prepare? What can we what can we do to change to make a difference? How can we uh, how can we make any shifts in this? We're pattern recognizing machines. We humans, it's our innate best quality, right? <laughs> to understand what's gonna come and by analyzing what has been before. My hope is that we're gonna be able to adapt to to this chaos and find patterns even in this change. Um, yes, I hope so. But I think that, you know, uh, what is happening is that the temperature is increasing. I mean, the, 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 uh, there's more changes in climate. So we, we don't even have time to get used to a certain pattern that it changes again. So it's really hard. I suppose this short-term putting a plaster on it approaches like putting up these uh, barricades to stop rivers flooding areas and building houses on top of hills or uh, away from water. But of course, then there's a longer approach of, uh, of trying to deal with climate change itself. And of course, that's a much bigger question and very much more complex, isn't it? And I think that's what sort of overwhelms people, doesn't it? How, how do we start? What can we do? And so people end up doing nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always amazed when you look at the U.S. and what happens every year with the hurricane season. <laughs> you know, there's we know there's hurricanes that will come, and they seem to get worse every year. And there seems to be no movement to change anything that might perhaps make it easier for people to bear the situation. I mean, I don't know what they can do other than warn people in, and give them enough time, but it just seems to me that not much has changed over the years in the last decade that there've been severe storms every single year <laughs> hitting places like New York City and causing unbelievable mayhem. It's kind of interesting. We don't seem to see the writing on the wall. <laughs> I think as an individual, there's it's so mighty, you know, the, the climate, the changes, it's so mighty that as an individual, there's nothing much we can do. But I think there's an opportunity for us to get organized and tell our representative, you know, those people that are um, supposed to fight to create a better life for us today and for tomorrow, and to tell them that we want the direction to change. Because if we're not taking action, and we know that individual actions is, is not enough, I mean, you, I mean, you can you know, uh, drive an electric car, you can do you know, small things, but it's not enough. And it's very stressful. You feel very disempowered. But I think it's we need to, to request, to demand changes in regulations. I think this is the only way we could do to make things change. I kind of think it's both and. I kind of think it's, yeah. I think it's because we can, you know, if you have to put in a new heating system, you know, can you put in a heat pump? Um, a cooling heating and cooling system. Can you fireproof your your property? You know, in some places uh, you can't have wood chips or you can't have certain products that might catch fire. You know, if you're going to move, consider where you're moving. Are you near water? Are you near a forest? You know, I mean, I think there are things that we can do, but it isn't enough. I think you're right. You have to also talk about supporting the systems that can help us uh, to create policy <laughs> that will keep people safe. Yeah, for example, you know, I'm just taking the example of France. When I first arrived in France, there was no air conditioning. And uh, now 
because it's getting hotter and hotter, people are adding air conditioning everywhere, in restaurants, in hotels, and also in people's home. And the problem is that, you know, we're talking about coping mechanism, but this is making things worse because first, you know, uh, the, the way uh, air conditioning works is that it spews out um, hot air uh, when it works. So for people walking on the street, it's become hotter. But on the other ha- side, it it's requires a lot of energy to make it work. So, and I mean, there are a lot of bad things in air conditioning. So it's making things worse. So maybe, you know, if nobody is saying that we should maybe stop or stop using air conditioning or using, you know, I don't know if it, yeah, air pump um, systems, which is less bad for the environment. I don't think there's any way that, I don't think there's a way to, to, to end this bad cycle. Yeah, I think it's like voting, really. You, you feel powerless in a country where you have one vote, but it's important you go out and vote, isn't it? It's something that people have fought for. And in this regard, we can vote time and again. We can make our own little vote each time we do something like attempt to reduce our milk or meat intake or walk to the shops instead of drive to the shops or whatever we do, it's a little vote each time. It's the same as democracy. You don't feel like you're necessarily making a big change by just putting your vote in and putting an X on a card. But if we all do that in our own small way, it can at least help to change things that way. And that's what this is all about, right? That's what the Carbon Almanac is all about, is having these conversations and and with more and more and more and more and more people so that eventually all those votes add up. Mm, yeah, and then by demanding change, by going to air source or ground source heat companies if the more people that do that the more people are going to say well we're going to need to make some more of these things whereas at the moment it seems a bit niche and the service that you get from these companies is perhaps not as good as it as it could be yeah i think individual actions are good but not strong enough not impactful enough it's as though people in authority will only respond when there is a demand though isn't it and there has to be more demand before people change Otherwise, people won't make a product if nobody's going to buy it. One of the things that the governments around here have been doing is offering grants to anybody who makes that change. So there there are thousands and thousands of dollars worth of grants that you can get if you decide to change your home to the more sustainable heating and cooling systems. Um, which is progress. So there's, you know, and you can get them at the provincial and at the federal level. So something's happening. (laughs) It's slow, but something's happening. In Birmingham, we have this great uh, recycling system. So uh, when I moved to Birmingham, we just put everything in the trash. Whereas now uh, I'm filing my rubbish. (laughs) 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 So various places. And then we put all these different bins out and and it's great, but I go to my business and it's completely ignored. So, <laughs> and there are a lot of businesses in, in the uh, in the town. So everything just goes into this one thing. And I think that's an opportunity that uh, that's being missed at the moment. Yeah, I think there are a lot of opportunities, but maybe they're not, people are not aware of them. That's our job. Yeah, the more we think about this on a daily basis, the more that we can make change. Yeah, I mean, in the end, of course, it is really a, it's a very difficult subject all the way around because there's so many facets to it, right? So you do feel disempowered a lot of the time because there are things that you feel that really are beyond your control, you know? So much of industry, for example, what it's producing in terms of 
carbon emissions and such, um, it doesn't feel like I have any choice about that, right? And it feels like politics doesn't change fast enough to get those things under control. What are you thinking, Joe? Yeah, I think there's even more and more people that are eager to do something about it and get involved in collective action for doing something about it. And I think that's our strength as a species when we gather and collectively try to find solutions to our problems. I'm hopeful there's a magical moment, a tipping point, where that's going to really start happening. And I hope that the Carbon Almanac may be a driver in this beautiful work that's ahead of us. So what is our conclusion for this conversation? Huh? Well, I heard, uh, I read Climate Change is Real. Climate change is real. <laughs> I, I read yesterday, you know, my husband read yesterday that Spain is starting to add bisons to their forests and lands to fight wildfires because it seems that the passing of these big herds through forests, especially pine and eucalyptus, is doing something to the land and to the brushery, to the forest that is helping them resist fires better. And I think there's beautiful solutions that are simple like this uh, that can be found or found again, maybe. They can be marvelous. It's like the introduction of beavers into the UK as well. And of course, they'll they'll make dams and it changes the um, ecosystem in in some areas uh, and is helping uh, in, in a small way to um, just change change the environment, and I think those sorts of those sorts of projects are uh, are really nice to see. I think we got ourselves into this mess, but we're resilient and creative. And uh, if we can if we can work together, I think I think we'll get there. I think that we uh, what we need to do, and I. I think that's because I'm very optimistic in general. And uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to create new solutions. I think what we could do, and this is what I'm going to do, and actually I'm already doing it, is to uh, talk about the topic. And I don't think this is one, you know, one solution that one, you know, one size fits all kind of solution, but there are lots of different solutions and people can come up with different sort of solutions to solve the different problems. So my, commitment or my way of helping fight climate change is to initiate informed structured discussions for people to feel not good but feel less hopeless and uh, start thinking of a positive aspect of it and see it in terms of opportunities i was when i was at work today uh, one of my nurses said to me what are you doing this weekend so just a simple comment like that and i talked about what we were doing this evening and she became quite interested. So I started talking about why I was involved. And then we started talking about some of the changes that we can make. And as a result of that, she's starting to look up uh, different businesses that can actually supply things to the practice now. So just that conversation with the people in the real world is, is part of the solution, isn't it? Because she was quite inspired by that. And, and so as a result, I think we can roll that out to the rest of the practice and soon we'll see quite a few changes happening yeah and uh, may i add something is that i think some people our you know our discussions will not resonate to some people because you know there are a different type at 
you know, they have to worry about other things in their life. So climate change is not something they want to deal with right now. Uh, for it, and they have their own reason. And before, my attitude was to try to convince them that they need to do something. And it's really hard. And I decided that now it's fine. You know, um, I'm okay. If you don't want to do anything, that's fine. I'm not going to, to try to force you to get involved that's fine. But so many other people that could be interested or want to get into this discussion. So it's uh, really by creating different conversations with various people and not, and there are some people that this message or this kind of ideas will not resonate with. And that's fine. They will talk, just talk to the next person. When um, listening to some of the conversations that have been had already prior to this discussion, there've been a few things that I've talked to. Uh, one of them was about compostable genes and it's an, it, I've mentioned it to a few people actually since, and everybody becomes quite interested. And I think the more of these conversations that are made, the more people are going to think, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. And then it does become ingrained. Then it, it, it's not like you're trying to persuade somebody. It's more about, I hadn't realized that. And we feel a bit more empowered when we know something, don't we? Yeah. There are options. There are other options. Yeah. It's not too late. <laughs> You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again as together we can change the world.